Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, for a sixth year, we're exploring the UBS Global Real Estate Bubble Index, the annual report that brings an up-to-date take on global urban housing markets and gauges the bubble risk in residential property markets in 25 major cities around the world. The 2022 edition sets a scene characterised by strong house price growth, high imbalances in certain geographies, ongoing issues around affordability, increasing household leveraging, the return of people to major cities driving continuing urbanisation, and, for various reasons we'll come to, rather gloomy prospects. So let's meet the panellists that are going to unpack the 2022 edition for us. First up is Matthias Holtai, Greby 2022 Editor-in-Chief and Head of Swiss Real Estate Investment at UBS Wealth Management in Zurich. Matthias, great to have you with us again. Before we get into the detail of this year's piece, remind us a bit about what you and your colleagues set out to achieve with the Greby each year. Well, I mean, basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to quantify imbalances on on urban in urban housing markets um, around the globe, we use a quite a simple and transparent model to do so. We use the same methodology for all cities. We always compare each city to its own history. I think that's important. So it's not a cross-sectional comparison. So we do not basically directly compare Toronto to Frankfurt or to London, but we look at, but we measure imbalances always relative to the own to its, to the to the story of a of a city. This can have quite profound impact if the city has historically been, say, prone to to exuberance. Then another another wave of exuberance or another wave of uh, another wave of wave of uh, rising prices is maybe gives you a lower signal or is. Uh, uh, it's less a sign of uh, potential imbalances than if a city has been had a stable housing market for 20 years and suddenly prices go up by 50%. Let's talk a little bit then about some of the key the key results then, then, then Matthias, just for a headline. I so said we're going to take a bit more of a geographic focus uh, later with some of your with your other colleagues. But maybe just give us a few of the, the headlines. Obviously, strong house price growth. Um, and I guess we're still seeing pretty high imbalances in particular markets here in Europe, of course, but across the pond uh, in Canada as well, very much so. Um, those are a couple of things. But give us, a, give us a bit of a rundown of some of the key findings. Well, I mean, as you, as you mentioned, I mean, we have to, we actually measure the strongest nominal house price growth since 2007. So on average, house prices in those cities are in nominal terms 10% higher than they were in mid-2021. But then, and we also, what we also worry about is that we see an acceleration in mortgage lending. And this acceleration has been, is very, very strong, at least in some markets, not, most notably in Israel, but also in the Eurozone, and also very strong in Canada and the US. But nevertheless, imbalances, and I think that's an important point to make here, have not increased on average. If you look at the if you look at the cities, I mean they are, they are highly elevated, but they have not increased despite despite the mortgage lending and despite the strong price growth, because this price growth was accompanied by very strong rental growth, at least in the U.S., but also but also in Europe, London. I mean. This was really a, a result of the, of the pandemic, of the strong household formation we've seen, and also strong income growth. At least, at least in the US, this was very extreme. The house, the household incomes really exploded 
in the in the last two years. And the last point is that cities still trail the nationwide averages. So 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 is urban housing markets do not uh, do not outperform let's say the, the broader the broader housing markets on average, on, on average anymore and these are all factors which actually limit the limit imbalances or limit the risk of house price corrections on a, in this you know on a, in the in the in, in the cities yeah, and I suppose if there's other trends to look at, um, obviously there are these constant questions around affordability. For example, there are, I guess, there identify some interesting detail around the degree to which households are leveraged or over leveraged. That's maybe on on the rise. Would you say, therefore, Matthias, if we take a kind of an overview here, that the prospects, if we're looking in this space, are generally somewhat gloomy? I did notice that word appeared in the in, in the key results section. Are the prospects gloomy? And if so, perhaps you could just unpack very briefly why so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's now very. It's, I think it's now very difficult, very challenging to be optimistic. Okay, about housing markets. I mean, first of all, I mean, mortgage rates went up everywhere. And if you look what you can actually afford, if you if if a high skilled worker, uh, how much living space a high skilled worker actually can afford, uh, based on based on a mortgage, maybe we look at an eighty percent loan to value ratio, then this is like then this is like thirty to forty percent lower than it than than what what it was four four quarters ago, and I mean this will have a profound effect on demand. Also, if you look at also if you think about uh, buy to let investments then you can make then you, you can run a very similar calculation and then what you will see is that the yield you actually make is lower than the mortgage rates you pay so this is not attractive this is not really attractive anymore from a from from an investment perspective and yeah, i mean that's i mean i think these are the these are the two main reasons uh, why we why we think demand will be much weaker for for housing than it was a year ago, and now and on top of that, now if we look at the if we take the economic forecast for the next year, then it then it really starts looking gloomy at least in the in the eurozone where we actually predict let's say no economic growth for the for in 2023, and for Germany even a likely recession overall throughout the year. So um, and in these conditions, and I mean if the labor market weakens. You cannot afford it anymore because you have to pay too much for your for your mortgages. Then, um, yeah, then I think that demand will just uh, demand will just shrink for the time being, and that's and that, that will then finally put pressure on prices. Matthias Holtzai. Next, we're turning to Dean Turner, economist in the UBS Global Wealth Management CIO, right here in London. Dean, welcome back to the show. Always good to chat to you. Remind us, before we dig into a little bit of the UK detail, why is this always such an interesting moment uh, for you and your colleagues? Why does this report always um, deliver so much? To just remind us why it's a particularly kind of helpful and instructive uh, piece to focus on each year. Yeah, what we find is uh, the document um, generates a lot of interest amongst clients. Um, certainly, uh, property is uh, something close to uh, close to everyone's heart. Um, but you know what? Why I find it useful is it because it really does give us a, a useful comparison on a global basis. You know, we, we're very much uh, um, sometimes focused on our, our own local markets, and you know, we're always sitting here, especially in London, um, moaning about the trials and tribulations of the housing market. But when you put in a global context, I think it gives you a much uh, much better perspective. 
Yeah, absolutely. But let's look. As you said, we're, we are both sitting in, in London. We're in a very interesting moment, uh, to, for want of a better phrase, in terms of where we're at in the cycle and economically, and there's a lot of volatility and uncertainty, obviously. Um, but give us a, the snapshot, Dean, of where London is in terms of the Grebby findings, first of all. Yeah, so in terms of the Grebby findings, uh, what we see is that uh, London itself has uh, remains in overvalued territory. I mean, I suppose that's the first uh, first thing to say. But it has fallen uh, down the rankings, and you know, of the twenty five cities we track globally, uh, we're now at um, uh, rank number sixteen. Um, I think that you know um, a lot of the drivers of that have been um, a somewhat modest um, slowdown uh, in price growth. Uh, in, in London, but also, you know, with regards to why does London remain over, overvalued, um, I think a lot of that still comes down to some of the affordability, affordability metrics that we're, that we're seeing. You know, um, compared to compared to long on averages, um, London still does look uh, expensive on a number of those measures. Yeah, and what about the kind of prospects? If we look a bit lo- longer term, uh, Dean, obviously we're there's a there's a lot of talk about higher interest rates. There's the ongoing inflationary pressure. Obviously, there's also just general uncertainty, or, or even you know more volatile turmoil, if you like, in, in the financial markets picture. If we look at the the sort of housing boom, generally speaking, do you think that that is going to be under increasing pressure? It's a little hard to say, I suppose. Yeah, look, I think it's fair to say that um, we're, we're, we're likely to see some um, uh, some volatility uh, in the short term. Um, part of that is going to be driven by the sharp rise in borrowing costs that homeowners uh, in the UK are going to be facing in the in, in, in the coming months. Um, you know, look, that, that, that's a trend globally. It, it, it is worth em- emphasising that as well. You know, the UK is the only place that's seeing uh, rising interest rates. But you know, the recent uh, volatility we have seen in financial markets uh, does point to uh, an additional risk premium being applied uh, to, uh, to UK bond markets. And that is finding its, uh, finding its way into the, the, the costs that borrowers are paying. But that said, you know, that, that is only one aspect of the housing market, as I'm, as I'm sure you appreciate. There are, there are a number of offsetting factors that, uh, that are likely to dampen, dampen the volatility over the medium term. You know, a couple of things I would mention with regards to that is the government policy um, still is, is, is still supportive uh, for home ownership. Um, one of the measures announced uh, in the recent mini, mini budget uh, involved a reduction in stamp duty, so that's something that uh, that might help stabilise um, uh, stabilise the market. And I think the other thing as well, thinking about longer term, um, you know, the UK is still in a situation where there is a structural um, shortage of supply uh, for houses um, for the housing more generally, and you know, a lot of that is linked to um, our somewhat archaic uh, planning reform laws here, but. You know that it is what it is, um, and the, the, the end result is that, that, that demand over the medium term continues to outstrip supply. Dean, just finally, I wanted to ask you about uh, the pound. Obviously, it's pretty weak at the moment. One imagines that a weak pound makes properties in the city continue to look attractive to foreign buyers, but is that the whole picture, or is it a little more complicated than that? 
I think um, it is a little bit more complicated. I mean, historically, a weaker pound uh, has been one of the supportive factors uh, for the for the London market. And as you say, it makes the uh, market look uh, much more attractive to international buyers. But you know, the volatility that we've seen in the in the currency of late will uh, make investors a little bit wary. Um, notwithstanding some of the price gains they may have made on properties they have in London, um, there's certainly been substantial currency losses uh, that offset that of late. So, you know, I don't think that on its own is going to be a supportive factor. Over the medium term, it, it may come into play there. Dean Turner. Finally, let's get a view from across the Atlantic, from the head of US real estate for the CIO of UBS Wealth Management, Jonathan Wallachin. Jonathan, welcome back. I think we chatted to you about the Grebby report last year. And, and before we dig down in detail into this year's piece, let's talk about what the report is and why it's such an interesting exercise each year. It's a really good question, Tom. And, you know, I, I think and we've t- I think we talked about this last year uh, within the report. I think it's very important to understand uh, what the report is and more importantly, what the report isn't. And in the report, it says what a bubble is. And I think that a lot of people associate a bubble with what happened with the not only the residential real estate market globally, but frankly, the entire global financial system post the bursting of the U.S. housing bubble. And really what this report does is try to identify uh, markets uh, and real estate assets that are in what we consider an overvalued position. Now, just because something is overvalued doesn't mean it will necessarily a burst or b uh, be decline. I mean, we can have overvalued and undervalued situations in any assets for for a very very long period of time. So, really, what we find the value in this report is helping investors uh, and potential homeowners understand. Uh, where markets may be overvalued, fairly valued, or undervalued, uh, but not to sit there and say, okay, if something is either overvalued or in bub- what we view as bubble territory based on a number of variables that are in the report, that therefore it should be avoided. And I think the best example is Hong Kong. Hong Kong has been in amongst the top three slots ever since we started publishing the report, yet Hong Kong remains a very strong market for a variety of reasons. Uh, so, I mean, really, that's what we find the value in the report is is helping helping uh, investors understand relative valuations and understanding the dynamics behind those relative valuations. Yeah, well, uh, Jonathan, let's let's zero in on then on the US and look at a couple of the the headlines. I mean, I guess if we look at some of the key results, still pretty strong house price uh, growth, um, and there are a number of US cities uh, which are amongst, I think, the top five with the fastest growing prices. We know there's lots of other headwinds and issues going on at the moment, lots of volatility, um, but I guess that's one of the key headlines to start with. Yeah, and uh, you know, so this cycle has been very, very interesting, and also very, very different from the cycle preceding uh, the global financial crisis. Uh, you know, house, you know, home prices were doing fairly well leading up to the COVID period, and one of the biggest beneficiaries were low rates. Uh, then COVID hit, and we obviously had several months where uh, activity you know, kind of cratered. But once people, once we got our feet under the ground, uh, or on the ground, as it were, uh, all of a sudden, there was this complete rethink 
uh, not only within the United States, but in, in many countries, but here in the U.S., uh, where people were going to work uh, was, and to a degree, is still unknown. And so while we've seen more people go back to the office, we do have hybrid work situations, and we have remote work situations. And that significantly changed the, the dynamic uh, in terms of housing demand. Some people didn't want to live in dense cities for fear of uh, for fear of being in close proximity to people with this pandemic. Uh, there are some people who said, I'm going to be working remotely part-time or full-time. I need more room. So I think, you know, markets like especially New York and San Francisco, where the apartments tend to be very small, I need more room. And as we look forward, uh, you know, you're seeing more people, while cities, especially in New York, uh, have really kind of roared back. Uh, a lot of people are saying, look, my work situation is unknown and different, and I need more room. I need whether you want to call it a bonus room, uh, uh, a, a home office, call it what, what you will. But what has now changed that dynamic the other way has really been interest rates. Uh, and interest rates are up you know, anywhere between three and 400 basis points from their lows. And so when you look at home prices that are at their peak in the U.S., and I'm just talking national median numbers, and you're laying or layering on this movement in interest rates, you're talking about just on a year-on-year -year basis, the median monthly payment is up something like 75%. Uh, and so that is going to put the brakes on a lot of what's going on. Now, obviously, there are going to be some segments of the market that are going to be largely immune, and that's the luxury buyer. But once we get below that luxury buyer, uh, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say, look, the affordability, the affordability calculus has changed dramatically for me, and I need to rethink this, number one. Number two, homeowners who are sitting on upwards of $30 trillion in equity are saying, well, I kind of missed the top in home prices. Uh, I'm sitting on a mortgage with a 25 or 3% mortgage. Why do I want to sell and have to rebuy in a market with a 7% mortgage rate? So I think we're, gonna, we're seeing a pretty, pretty hard breaking in, when I say breaking, slow down. Uh, in the U.S. housing market. Uh, probably the biggest exception would be Miami, and we did highlight Miami in the report. Now, Miami is benefiting from not only uh, inter-U.S. or intra-U.S. migration, uh, but also uh, migration from, you know, particularly South America into Miami, Florida being a no-tax state uh, and being, you know, regulat uh, what I call regulatory, reasonable and friendly is attracting a lot of businesses and a lot of populations. But, you know, our view has been, while we are certainly not calling for a 2008, 2009 style crash, and there are a lot of reasons which I'm happy to get into, we do think the housing market is going to slow considerably in this country. Now, what we mean by slowing is the rate of home sales is going to slow. Uh, if you just look at the starts and permits numbers, you can see new housing is really slowing. Uh, I talked about why I think a lot of sellers are not going to sell their existing homes. We think the rate of home price appreciation uh, is going to continue to slow even faster than we thought it would in the beginning of the year. And some markets will and already have experienced outright price declines. But we shouldn't confuse those price declines with the crash that I think, you know, some of the more bearish folks out there are calling for. 
Yeah, and I wanted to ask you a little bit, a bit more detail about sort of supply and demand. And maybe if we zero in, you mentioned New York already, Jonathan, in your your, your remarks. I mean, it's interesting, obviously, there's not going to be a big supply increase if we look at Manhattan, for example. Um, but clearly, there there are things which may not bode that well for housing demand. You've outlined some of them. To what degree do things like worries about recession, um, we see uh, hiring slowdown, and actually that's that's something that's a bit different even than when we spoke 12, 12 months ago. D- does that play in, do you think, to some of these um, concerns maybe uh, about what the demand's going going to look like? Uh, invariably, the answer is yes. So you're, you're quite right in Manhattan. Uh, in fact, lack of supply has been one of the things really plaguing Manhattan. Now, some of the outer boroughs are seeing more multifamily supply, but in terms of the for purchase market, there is not a lot of new supply coming. Um, in the same in the suburbs, I, you know, this is kind of a good news, bad news thing. The home, the good news is the home builders have gotten an immense amount of capital discipline uh, since the global financial prices crisis. The bad news is they've gotten a lot of financial discipline and they're being very thoughtful in how they develop. And so I think this is one of the biggest differences between those cycles is uh, the the level of inventory, both existing uh, and new homes are is significantly lower than it was during the the housing bubble period. But yes, you are quite correct that in term that in addition to what is significantly depleted affordability uh, is now being uh, being exacerbated by concerns about a slowing economy, a Fed that has made it very very clear that their number one priority is to tamp down on inflation. Uh, and the the potential for them to overshoot certainly exists. Uh, and if they do overshoot, uh, the risk of a recession certainly have increased. And so for most of us, buying a home is the single biggest investment we will make. And I think a lot of people are going to sit there and rethink that. So I think that's a very, very valid point. Is there anything you'd add, Jonathan, just finally, looking at the U.S. market specifically? Number one, I just want to reemphasize that uh, one should not confuse a slowdown with the bursting of a bubble, number one. Uh, number two, um, we, and, and this is something that's going to be probably more unique to the U.S. just because of the individual, uh, we talk about the Wayne Gretzky approach to real estate investing and home buying, Wayne Gretzky being probably the greatest hockey player of all time. He had this very famous line called, I skate to where the puck is going. And that has formed the basis of a lot of our analysis, both in residential and commercial real estate. And what I mean by that is that a lot of people uh, have rethought their living patterns. uh, And a lot of this was pre-COVID based on tax rates, uh, regulatory regulatory regimes, uh, and affordability. Now, with COVID, especially with people who can work remotely full time, they're going to look at a market like in L.A., a New York, a San Francisco, which are very, very expensive markets and say, if I can make the same money or even just slightly less, but live in a, a nice, you know, a nice climate where my cost of living is significantly lower. Uh, and if I can get a no tax or a low tax state, uh, I think that is that is something that is not going to stop. So while we're not here to say that, you know, no one should live in California or New York or any of these other states that are a little more challenging from a tax and regulatory perspective, we think these migratory patterns are very, very important for people to think about, you know, in terms of not only where they want to live, but how that might impact values both in uh, in states that are benefiting from immigration and those that are suffering from out migration. Jonathan Wallachin. 
And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club by subscribing to Monocle magazine. You can also follow this programme wherever you get your podcasts or discover more and find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks very much for listening.